Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of handmade beauty. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today our topic is kimono, a traditional Japanese garment. Now you may be wondering, or maybe you're not, but I'm going to tell you anyway, what does kimono mean? It's kind of funny, actually. A lot of words in Japanese are really straightforward and uh, descriptive. You know, you just take what the thing is and you say it, and that's the new name for it. So kimono is made of two parts, kimono. So the beginning part, ki, comes from kiru, which is the verb to wear. And mono just means thing. So kimono is just a thing that you wear. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah. You always wonder where stuff like that starts. Yeah. Do you really just start with like, hey, what are you wearing? Uh, I'm, I'm wearing a thing. Yeah. Oh, let's call that a wearing thing, <laughs> a thing you wear. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to say that this is an interesting part of the Japanese language too, is that it, like in English, we just have one word for wearing things. You know, you wear a hat, you wear a shirt, you wear pants, whatever. Japanese has all sorts of different verbs for all of those different things. They have a different verb for wearing gloves or wearing socks or whatever. I don't know. It's interesting. It's a little more complicated, but also very precise and specific. Mm, similar to their counting words. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what is, what is a kimono, Paul? What does it look like? How do you describe a kimono? The kimono is a T-shaped wrapped garment. Yeah, kind of like a robe you could... I mean, that's the closest thing probably we have in the U.S. It's like a, almost a bathrobe sort of shape. Yeah, a very fancy, different. But... Fancy robe, you could think about it that way. Sure. And how is it uh, kept closed? They are tied with a sash around the waist called an obi. Yeah. And you know, I always thought that it was kind of just that obi that's holding everything together. But I learned there's actually something underneath that. Because the obis these days are so big and thick and heavy, they're kind of not flexible enough to really hold everything together. It's almost more of a decorative thing. But there's something underneath that called the koshihimo that ties it closed. It's more of a thin, smaller piece of cloth. Yeah. If I understand correctly, the obi used to hold kimonos closed, yeah, yeah. but it's become such an elaborate decorative thing that it doesn't really work super well as a belt anymore. Exactly. That's the impression I got too. But they look cool. They do. They really do. It's a very important part of the look. Yes. So there are a lot of different types of kimono and we'll get into more specifics, but there are all different levels of formality different types that can be worn for specific different types of occasions, that sort of thing. And there are tons of accessories that go along with them as well. And we'll talk a bit about that too. But first, we talk a bit about the history, where kimono came from. I think we definitely should. Okay. Where did kimono first come from, Paul? Well, there's a theory out there that Kimono were basically derived from Chinese clothing from the Wu region. Yeah, which was right around modern Shanghai. Yeah. And if you look at old Chinese paintings of that region and era, you can kind of see where, okay, that, that does kind of look like maybe where they got the idea. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And also, I mean, Japanese fashion in their early history was influenced by China in a lot of other ways, too. As we've been learning about a lot of the things we've researched so far, many things came over from China at one point or another before they got their own special Japanese twist. Yeah, definitely. 
Uh, but kimono as we know them today more or less started appearing around the Heian period, which was between 794 to 1185. And they evolved a lot throughout those few hundred years. Yeah, they became increasingly more stylized. Mm -hmm. But people still wore them with a half apron called a mo over it. And part of the reason for their rise in popularity is because they're really easy to make. We'll talk a little bit about how they're made later. And they're wearable in all weather. You can layer them if you're getting warm or too cold. You can wear different numbers of layers. And you don't have to worry about a person's body shape either. They can be pulled really tight or worn a little looser. So it's kind of a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. It makes it really easy to, to make for a lot of different people. Yeah. So throughout the Heian period, people started using more layers, like I said, and, and different colors. And art from that period, I thought it was kind of funny looking at people wearing kimono in that period because there could be so many layers. It almost looks like just this giant mass of cloth and then a little head popping out of the top. <laughs> yeah, the heads look so small in those depictions. Yeah. It's not the stylized art that makes it that way. It's the fact that they're wearing so many layers of clothes that they yeah. looked all puffed up. Yeah, sometimes you can't even tell where the people are or how many people there are because it's just, okay, there's a little ball there that's a head. There's a little head over there, but it's just, <laughs> just cloth everywhere. It's almost like a tortoise sticking its head out of a shell. <laughs> yeah. So around the 1400s, something called the Kosode started to be worn. Oh, man, there's so much vocabulary here. I'm not sure the best way to say this, but okay. So there was a Kosode, which was a single kimono that used to be used as an underwear, like it was the base layer, sort of. But around the 1400s, that kosode started to be worn by itself, without you know the layers on top of it, without the hakama, which were these divided pants sort of things, and, and they started using the obi. So I thought this was really interesting, because you can kind of see a parallel between that and clothing in the U.S., because like t-shirts, right? A t-shirt is a super common casual item of clothing these days, but it used to be an undershirt. Like you would never see somebody wearing a t-shirt because it's underwear, right? Yeah. So it kind of reminded me of that. Like they used to wear this kimono as underwear and now it's just the standard. Everybody wears that just around. It's like over time, fashion always seems to get more and more casual. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Until it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, there's always formal clothing too, but even formal clothing these days, like a suit, is not as elaborate as the suits that people were wearing like a couple hundred years ago, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think definitely the last hundred years or so, we've traveled much more to the casual end of things. Yeah. There was a time a hundred years ago where no man would go outside without a full suit and a hat. Yeah. And now everybody's going out to the store in flip-flops and basketball shorts. And yeah, yeah. But who knows, they could swing back someday. Yeah, I mean, I suppose fashion is a cycle, kind of. Yeah, I mean, some some point we got to the point where everybody was wearing a three-piece suit and a hat. Yeah. So, who knows? Yeah, interesting. But, like, we're all enjoying the casual wear these days. Yeah. Athleisure. Gotta pretty be, comfy. Yeah, gotta be comfy. Yeah. Comfy is good. Women don't have to wear corsets and these giant skirts anymore. Oh, man. Couldn't even imagine. I know. Still got those high heels, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. High heels are dumb, for the record. Okay. But people like them, Paul's I guess. Taking, taking a stance on that one. I sold shoes for four years, so I'm not completely uneducated about shoes. 
Well, you're also a dude, so I'm not sure how uh, how much weight your opinion holds on women's fashion. I'm the one that had to bring out 20 pairs of shoes for these women to try because none of them are comfortable. And it's like, hey, women's shoes just aren't comfortable. It's not the shoe. It's not you. <laughs> Let's just make some comfortable women's shoes, people. Let's get on that. Fair enough. Moving on. All right. Uh, so the modern form of kimono, like what we think of as kimono today, appeared in the Edo period, which was between the 16 and late 1800s. And doesn't it seem like it's this way with most things that people associate with Japan? Whatever people are thinking of as like, oh, this is just the traditional Japanese thing. It seems like it's always in the Edo period where that final form came about. Yeah. And that makes sense in a way because the Edo period was the closest time to us before the Meiji Restoration where they switched to more Western styles. Yeah. yeah. So it was like the last peak development of traditional Japanese things. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. And also that was a really prosperous time in Japan. Like, you know, the arts flourished, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, they had peace for 250 years or so. Mm -hmm. That's always good for development. Yeah. So in the Edo period, the sleeves grew in length. So they were right down to the wrist. And the obi became wider, like we mentioned. The obi is real big and fancy now. So you pretty much get the modern kimono. Yeah. Since then, uh, the basic shape of kimonos has remained pretty much unchanged. Yep. So what happened after the Meiji Restoration? Well, the Japanese began shedding kimonos in favor of more Western dress. Yep. The, uh, the emperor, Emperor Meiji... Had a lot to do with that, too. He had police and railroad men and teachers wear Western clothes. Like, it was kind of dictated that they would wear Western clothes. Yeah, and even to this day, school uniforms in Japan are based on Western styles. Yeah. During this time, kimonos started getting replaced mostly by Western clothes, but by yukata, too, which I believe we mentioned earlier were kind of like light kimonos. Did we mention that? Summer kimonos. Yeah. That's what you caught are. And another reason that it, people were starting to wear more Western clothes is that kimono and geta, geta are the, some of the footwear that goes along with kimono. And I mean, that whole outfit is kind of more restrictive than Western clothes. You can't move as fast because those kimono can kind of bind your legs together a little bit. You can't take very big steps. The footwear is almost like a flip-flop, so you can't really run in them. And actually, after that great Kanto earthquake that we talked about in our last episode, a lot of people were robbed that were wearing kimono because they couldn't run away. Did that's, you see that? That's crazy. I Isn't did it? see that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the kimonos are wrapped tight enough that your legs can't move enough to fully sprint, apparently. Yeah. Also, traditional kimono became too expensive for the average family to buy. Kimono were, were handmade and made of silk, usually. And I mean, they, they could commonly go for over a thousand dollars each. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that kimono are easy to make, which is why they became popular, but they're hard to make in the sense that you need a whole lot of labor hours. It's intensive labor because so much of the sewing is done by hand. Yeah. You know, maybe I should have phrased it as they're easy to assemble. There's a lot that can go into making the fabric and stuff, but once you have the fabric laid out, it's pretty simple to stitch it together into the right shape. But yeah, the rest of the process can be pretty labor-intensive and expensive. And they're probably a lot more fancy these days. 
when people first started wearing kimono, they were probably much less decorative and just everyday wear. Yeah. So that pretty much brings us to the modern day. Who's wearing kimono these days, Paul? Uh, today, kimono are most often worn on special occasions, such as weddings, funerals, or even for a tea ceremony. Uh, they tend to be worn more often by women than men, though men do wear them still too. Um, there are some people that wear kimono in everyday life still. Yeah, not a lot of them, but some older people might just, just like that style and they continue to wear kimono every day. They're not running around anywhere, so... Yeah, they don't need to move all that fast. <laughs> also, a couple types of people that we have talked about in previous episodes, geisha and sumo wrestlers, who are both kind of meant to represent that old... Traditional Japanese culture. Yeah, yeah, traditional. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, both geisha and sumo always wear kimonos in public. Yes, They do not come out in anything else. Right. And sumo wrestlers, I mean, those guys can get huge, as we mentioned. They might need to get their kimono custom-made, too, just because of the size of them. Yeah, and people tend to rent rather than buy their kimonos mostly these days because you don't wear them very often if you need one for a wedding. They're so expensive, it doesn't really make sense to buy one. Yeah. But it's kind of similar here in the West. Like how many people actually own a tuxedo? Yeah, exactly. You rent one if you'd really need one for a wedding or something. Right. I actually did own a tuxedo. Really? Did you know that? For? It was for band. Band, yeah. Yeah. Okay. High school band. (laughs) High school band makes you wear a tuxedo. That's funny. (laughs) yeah now that i think about it that's kind of weird these days that seems like overdressed for like a high school activity yeah sitting in a high school gym in a tuxedo it's american tradition i guess (laughs) someone in japan is doing a podcast about american traditional clothing (laughs) tuxedos aren't worn often these days but at special events such as concerts and weddings (laughs) such as high school band concerts (laughs) all the parents sit in the stands that's silly um, so if you want to try a kimono in Japan, there are places that let you rent and wear a kimono for a day. Mm-hmm. Um, since kimono are expensive, it's a little pricey. It's usually $50 plus to rent and wear a kimono in a day. But if you're into fashion, that might be a fun thing to do. Yeah, totally. And you know, I've seen, especially in places like Kyoto, where people are going there to experience the traditional kind of stuff, maybe walk around all these old temples you see a lot of couples, both like foreigners and Japanese people walking around in kimono together just for a fun little date. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a cool thing to do is rent kimono and walk around the city and see everything. You'll see, you'll see a lot of that. Uh, Definitely Kyoto is the place where you get to see the most kimono. Yeah. There's even places in Kyoto where they make kimono that you can go in and they do little fashion shows sometimes and you can look through all the cool stuff they're making and rent one if you so desire. Nice. Let's talk about how kimono are made. Yeah. As we mentioned, they're expensive. There are reasons for that. So normally formal kimono are made out of silk. For everyday wear, they're going to be made out of something a little less fancy, like cotton or hemp. Yeah, silk is the ideal fabric yeah. for a kimono, but it's very expensive, so not every kimono obviously is made of it. Yeah, and fabrics are often handmade, 
and hand-decorated in all sorts of different ways. There are a lot of different techniques. So there's one called shibori. Shibori is a type of resist dyeing. Resist dyeing is where you make sure that the dye doesn't get into certain parts of the fabric. So this is actually super similar to tie-dye. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but it doesn't look like, you know, hippie tie-dye. You're not going to find a kimono that's all crazy colors. Yeah, yeah. So much. But they use indigo, and indigo is a really popular dye for all sorts of Japanese clothing, partially because it is a natural insect repellent. That's awesome. Yeah. Also the same thing that jeans are dyed with. So one way that they do shibori is they tie up these little tiny sections of fabric so that you just get these little tiny white rings in like really intricate patterns on this blue garment. It looks really cool. Or they can do all sorts of different sizes and shapes of this stuff, but that's shibori. There's another one called yuzen, which is also resist dyeing, but it's a bit more intricate and detailed. So the way they do that is they use this rice paste and they spread it on the parts that they don't want dyed. And then they like hand paint the dye into the parts that they do want to dye. And they can get super, super sharp lines and all sorts of different colors and like really, really intricate designs. It's really amazing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's how they get them looking so cool. Yeah. So you'll find kimono with all sorts of different patterns and color schemes and those different patterns determine what time of year you're going to want to wear that kimono. Yes. So if you have butterflies or cherry blossoms on your kimono, you're going to want to wear that in the springtime. Mm-hmm. Watery designs are very common in summer. What about fall? A popular fall design is the Japanese maple. They turn a nice pretty color in the fall. Yeah, that sounds pretty. Mm-hmm. And then for winter, often you'll find pine trees or bamboo. If you listen to the gardens episode we did, those two plants are both known for looking beautiful in winter. That's true. We did talk about that. So it ties together a little bit. Yep. Also ties into our geisha episode. We talked a bit about how geisha totally coordinate their whole outfit around the season. Yeah. Yeah. So they're changing kimonos with the season. Yep. So once you have your fabric... A kimono is traditionally made of a single bolt of fabric. Yeah, known as a tanmono. And the entire bolt is used to make the kimono. Yep. So everything is used. They've got it down. Yep. So they're going to have four main panels. There's two for the body, two for the sleeves, and then the leftover strips they're going to use for the other little details, like the collar and narrow front panels. Yep. Children's kimono are only three panels, though, just because they're smaller. Yeah. You should also note that kimono have a flat collar. They're not folded over like uh, American dress shirts. And I also thought it was really interesting that historically, kimono were taken apart, like disassembled, just to wash them. Yeah, I bet that would make it a lot easier to wash it, especially without damaging it. Make sure you get everything. I guess. I mean, they these things are expensive. They're taking a lot of care with them. But man, that just seems like a lot of work. Yeah, I don't think it's something, something you would do every week. Right, you right. Know? But that's part of the thing where it's made with four panels and they're all made basically the same way. Yeah. So it's pretty easy to take it apart and put it back together again yeah. if you're good at sewing. True. So all the hard work that goes into hand making the fabric really adds to the cost. Yeah. A modern day kimono, brand new, 
can easily exceed ten thousand U.S. dollars. It's insane. And I can't imagine spending that much on a single item of clothing. If you get the whole outfit, the kimono, the undergarments, the obi, the socks, the shoes, the accessories, you can be pushing twenty thousand dollars easily. The obi alone can be several thousand dollars. They're so elaborately decorated. Yeah, it's crazy. And in general, women's kimono are going to be more expensive than men's because men's are going to have less intricate designs, a lot more like solid color sort of stuff. Yeah, the women get the more beautiful kimono. Yeah. And that shows in the price and how hard it is to make. Yeah. But not every kimono that people own are going to be that expensive. You know, most people, normal people, are going to have less expensive ones that maybe aren't made of silk. A lot of times they'll make them of synthetic fabrics these days. Yeah. Like the cotton or hemp ones are going to be less, obviously. And they make washable ones now, too. Like, you don't always have to take them apart. They can just be ones that you throw in the wash. Yeah, some people get them dry clean these days, which Mm -hmm. is going to be expensive, but easier than taking them apart and yeah so now that we know what a kimono is how do you wear a kimono paul well kimono are usually worn to ankle length Mm -hmm. and women's kimono are actually longer because they wore it wear it folded at the hip yeah that's called ohashori and I'd never noticed that before, but I looked up pictures after I read that, and you do actually see that a lot. It's kind of a very subtle detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not something I noticed until I started doing this research. Yeah. Um, the so, collar is attached flatly, as you mentioned earlier, not folded over. Mm-hmm. And it's very important, always worn left over right. Unless you're dead. Yes. <laughs> Yes, a deceased person will wear it right over left. So that's an important detail. It might look really funny if you get that wrong. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And as I said, the sleeves reach the wrist these days when you're just standing with your arms down. And we said there used to be a lot of layers. These days, there's just one layer on top of undergarments. Yep. And we have mentioned that uh, kimono are tied with a sash known as an obi around the waist. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the obi is knotted in the back. Yeah, the knot is called a musubi. And there are a bunch of different ways of tying that. All sorts of different styles for different types of people. Like I know Maiko and Geisha have specific ways of tying their obi. There are all sorts of different details for different occasions. And it gets so... It gets crazy. I mean, a lot of things in Japan are like this, where there's a great deal of attention paid to every single little detail. And with kimono, that is very much true to the point that they have professional licensed kimono dressers that you can hire to help you put together the perfect outfit because they're going to understand all the symbolism of the different designs on all the different accessories and stuff and the way to put them together. There are even like subtle social messages that get sent just depending on what you're wearing. So it gets pretty in-depth. Yeah, I'd say like the average person in Japan is definitely not going to know how to tie an obi. And if you actually do, and you know how to do different styles and what's appropriate, it's like really impressive. Everyone's going to be like, oh, you know how to tie an obi. Help me out over here. Yeah. You know, I'm not even sure if it's really possible to tie 
a really fancy OB by yourself. Because we talked in the Geisha episode about how they would have really strong men that could wrap it up, you know, in the right way. It takes a lot of work to get dressed up in the perfect way. Yeah, if you're trying to make it perfect, I doubt you could do it by yourself. Yeah. You probably you can't could. see behind you anyway. You probably could on the fly. Yeah, I guess. If I you mean, were talented enough. Yeah. Right. And depending on the type of kimono, you know, not all obi are super fancy and, you know, they don't always have to be tied in a really intricate way. But Yep. The knots for the obi can be based on how old you are, what type of obi you're wearing, uh, how formal is the occasion you're going to. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's many, many ways to do it. Yep. So I wanted to talk a little bit about a few variations on the kimono, because, you know, you might have an image in your head of what a kimono looks like, but there are a bunch of different types, and some of them look similar, some of them look quite a bit different. So Paul, you mentioned the yukata, the casual summer kimono. Mm-hmm. That one's usually cotton or synthetic, unlined, kind of a... You know, light breezy kind of kimono. Yep. Right? And it's going to, but it's going to look a lot like a standard kimono. Yeah. And we've mentioned yukata in other episodes. It's what you wear when you get out of a traditional Japanese bath. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're worn around a fair bit. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about the furisode? That is a type of kimono traditionally worn by young women. And it's, the swinging sleeve kimono. Yeah, the sleeves are like super long and not long in the sense that they're like draping over your hands so you can't use your hands. But like if you held your arms straight out to your sides, the sleeves would be hanging down from your wrists like almost to your feet. Yeah, like the bottom section of it just goes down. Right. So when you're walking, it's almost touching the ground. Yeah. Um, women tend to wear those if they're unmarried and young. Yeah. So once you get married, you would shorten the length of your sleeves, or once you got past your early 20s, you would uh, shorten the length of your sleeves. Yeah. Yeah. I saw these were often worn at coming of age ceremonies or maybe at weddings by unmarried female relatives. Yeah. Yeah. You've probably heard of the famous Japanese tea ceremony. There's actually a specific type of kimono that's worn for that called the iromuji. Of course. Yeah. Uh, there's one called the mofuku, which is for mourning. This is what you would wear to a funeral. Oh, that type of mourning. Yes. Not <laughs> like the early part of the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And these are very formal. That makes sense. When you're mourning the loss of someone, you, want, you don't want to be dressed super casual. Yeah. So these are black. or I think I saw maybe some really dark other color, but mostly black, it seemed like. And another part that ties into the formality is these kamon, which is like a family crest. And the number of kamon on your kimono shows how formal it is. So this mofuku is going to have five komon for the maximum level of formality. That's interesting. But my personal favorite kind of kimono is something called the juni hitoe, which translates to a 12-layer robe. Juni is 12. And... Funny thing is, though, these weren't always 12 layers. It could be up to 20 layers of silk. Each layer is going to be super intricate, handmade, hand-embroidered. This is like the most expensive, maybe even the most expensive piece of clothing on the planet. I think that's probably fair to say. Because these were super elegant and complex garments worn by court ladies in the Heian period. 
Mm. Of course, that would start at court. Yeah. Yeah. Let's. I'm going to wear another layer. I'm going to wear more layers than she has. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I bet it totally became a I'm just making that up, but that's probably how it happened. Yeah. I mean, back then, you know, court fashion was a big deal. Women were considered the most beautiful of, they had really, really long black hair. So they would put in hair extensions even to make their hair look longer. And yeah, I mean, they'd sit there with this super long hair in this giant mass of silk. <laughs> I could totally see them getting into competitions, just be like, who can be the most beautiful with the most hair and silk, you know? It's kind of like the opposite of today, where it's like the more form-fitting and tight something is, the better we think people look in it. Yeah. And it's so interesting to see how standards of beauty change over time. Because I mean, these things you would have no idea what their body was shaped like at all. All you see is their head yeah. and a bunch of cloth. Even with men's clothes these days, like the slim fit suits and skinny jeans are in. Yeah. It's interesting how fashion changes like that. It is. So all these layers of silk, they could weigh up to 45 pounds. That's crazy. Is that even more than like... You know, an army guy has to carry around with him, like all his supplies and stuff. Probably about as much. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Today, if you're wearing like uh, jeans and a t-shirt and a belt, it's probably like, what, three pounds or something. If that, yeah. Yeah. So only the imperial household still uses these things for very important functions. This isn't something that, you know, very many people have. And with all those layers of silk and all the work that goes into making them, they are insanely expensive i couldn't find a solid number maybe because there really aren't any available to buy these days but i found a reference somebody said that they're probably worth more than most houses yeah i totally believe it yeah and i did find a number for if you want to rent one so you can well it's not even really rent one you can't go outside with it you can pay just to get dressed up in it and take a few pictures and that alone is about $2,500. That's bonkers. It is bonkers. <laughs> Just to wear this piece of clothing for a few minutes. I, wow. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Wow. That's Crazy. just, they, you know, if it costs hundreds of thousands to make these things, I suppose. Yeah. It's like renting a Ferrari, you know, if you spill some coffee on that or something. <laughs> so... Are you going to be walking around in a kimono barefoot, Paul? No. Typically, kimono are worn with traditional Japanese footwear. Mm -hmm. One common one is called geta, and they are a kind of sandal that's wooden with an elevated wooden base, and it's held onto the foot with a fabric thong. Yeah. If you're trying to imagine what it looks like, you could kind of think of it as like a flip-flop. At least that's how the top fabric part is holding it onto your foot mm -hmm. and then the base of it is like you said wood and those there are two of those teeth usually that are maybe a couple inches tall to raise you off the yeah, ground a little like bit. an inch wide each yeah so you're kind of balancing on the two teeth so i've heard geta are actually really nice if it's raining because you raised a couple inches off the ground it keeps your feet dry yeah yeah and the geta are heavy enough that you don't get the splash back off the heel that you would get wearing walking around in normal flip-flops. Yeah, that's cool. But they don't do so well in the snow because snow gets compacted in between the teeth mm -hmm. and it makes it hard to walk around. Yeah. I thought it was interesting too. I'd never seen different heights on those. 
but there are some super tall ones that you can find and also ones with different numbers of those teeth. Like you could find ones that only had one little wooden thing <laughs> sticking down and it was super tall. It almost looks like you're walking on stilts. Yeah, I've seen some that had to be like six inches or so Yeah, raised off the ground. Yeah. That'd be tough to walk around and get a uh, pretty good balance. Yeah. I also saw that fish merchants used to wear really tall ones to keep their feet above the fish scraps on the floor. It seems like a pretty useful piece of footwear. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be stepping at fish scraps. Yeah. Uh, what other kind of uh, traditional footwear would you likely be find someone in a kimono wearing? Well, uh, there's another one called Zori, and these are a little similar to Geta. They're also flat sandal sort of things. Uh, these ones aren't going to have the teeth on the bottom. They're just sitting flat on the ground. And from what I saw, these are more likely to be worn with kimono, like real fancy ones. The geta are maybe more likely to be worn with yukata. But even zori, there's a wide range of formality depending on the material that they're made of because they could be made of rice straw, cloth, wood, leather, rubber, plastic. They could take a lot of different forms and look a lot of different ways depending on what they're made of. Yeah. What I thought was really interesting is that zori are very similar to flip-flops. Mm -hmm. And the modern flip-flop became popular in America when soldiers returning from World War II brought Japanese zori home with them. Yeah, I thought that was interesting So that too. is where we got flip-flops from. Yep, you can thank Japan. Flip-flops are like cheap zori. Exactly. I personally hate flip-flops. They're not very comfortable. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I have sensitive toes or something, but I don't like them. I don't mind if other people wear them, but maybe, not for me. Maybe we need to get ones with cloth instead of just like this cheap rubber on top. You know what I mean? Maybe. Because part of it is just having that piece of hard rubber or plastic in between your toes, you know? These days, I just go for slip-on shoes. Yeah. And ditto. skip sandals altogether. Yeah. But that's just me. So if you're going to be wearing these thonged sandals... In Japan, it's not taboo to wear them with socks. Yeah, you know, you could wear them barefoot. That's definitely a thing. But you're often going to see these split-toed socks that, like, the only indent on your in your toes is that part that's going to slip through the little thong fabric thing yeah, on your footwear. between your big toe and the rest of your toes. Yeah. And it is really funny that in the U.S., Socks with sandals is like the worst fashion decision you could make. <laughs> but in Japan, that can be like super fancy and classy, you know? Well, if we had specific socks to wear with our sandals, maybe it wouldn't <laughs> be such taboo. So the socks are called tabi. Yes. Oh, we didn't say that? I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. Tabi. Toe divided socks. Yep. Um, there's a bunch of other accessories that people wear with kimono. One I thought uh, was interesting that I've seen a lot. It's called a kinshaku, also known as a kimono bag. And it's basically just a bag made of fabric with a drawstring. It's like a modern day purse or coin pouch. Yeah, I mean, you need some way to carry stuff around. Kimono don't have pockets generally. so Yeah, so if you've got keys or a cell phone or money, throw it in your little kinshaku and uh, walk around with it. Yep. Um, I've also seen... I mean, there are different types of bags that people could use with kimono. And I've seen one where it wasn't even a bag. It's just a piece of cloth that women can wrap their stuff up in and just tuck it behind their obi to kind of keep some lipstick or whatever with them. That's cool. Yeah. There are different ways. 
And there are also tons of other types of accessories like hairpins. There are a bunch of different types of jackets that you can wear on top of a kimono. Mm-hmm. There's like a paper umbrella. You've probably seen those. Yeah, those are cool. Yeah. All sorts of accessories. Too many to list here. You get the traditional but... fold-out fans. Yeah, Keep yeah, yourself fans. cool. Yep. Yeah. Tons of stuff, but we won't get into all that. Not in this episode. Maybe we'll do a whole one about accessories. <laughs> yeah. Traditional accessories. Maybe we will. But for today, that's all I got. You got anything else? No, I think that gives a pretty good idea of what kimono are and where they came from. I think so too. Well, if you want to learn more about all sorts of different stuff or see some super cool, pretty pictures, check out our website at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. What is our next episode, Paul? We are going to be talking about sushi. Yeah. Favorite of both of us, I think. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised it took us, what, 20 episodes to get to sushi? Well, it's the first food item we're doing outside of just food. That's true. We did a food episode. So it is the first like food we're getting to. So Yeah. So we're going to get real deep. We should uh, go get some all-you-can-eat sushi for research purposes, right? I was was thinking that earlier today. (laughs) Like maybe we should be tasting sushi while we record the episode. (laughs) But people probably don't want to listen to us chew and talk with our mouths full. As much as I would enjoy that, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well... Look forward to sushi, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.